Welcome to BR in Education. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another awesome episode of VR and Education. In today's episode, we are talking with Jesse Lubinsky, who's the Chief Learning Officer for Ready Learning One. Ready Learning One is an innovative learning solutions provider, and they have a wealth of knowledge and wisdom, of course, related to emerging technologies. He's here today, though, to talk more about his upcoming book, The Esports Playbook, Empowering Every Learner Through Inclusive Gaming. And also, he's here to mesh that with virtual reality. So welcome to the show, Jesse. Craig, thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here. And and we're ready learner one, but you know what? You're you would be the the hundredth person to make the mistake of of the pronunciation of the name because usually people just call it Ready Player One because of the movie. So it's it's something we're used to. And the book. I'm looking forward to Ernest Klein's second book on that. Uh, so excited. And Armada was great, but I'm really looking forward to the sequel. I mean, as you could tell, that was definitely the inspiration behind the name of the company. Uh, speaking of inspiration, uh, tell us how you got interested in, uh, first of all, virtual reality, and then maybe you could sort of dive into esports as well. It's kind of funny, right? Because it, it, there's definitely this tendency that if you're a VR person, chances are you're interested in esports also, right? Because most of the people, definitely in education, who are into these things are just technologists and curious people who are into exploring how technology can help learning uh, and teaching. I think for me, VR was always this curiosity, this thing that I was always keeping tabs on in terms of, you know, how much progress is it making in terms of being able to actually make an impact in our classroom? I think uh, through pop culture, we were able to kind of see how that technology was evolving over time. Esports was easier, right? I mean, I've been a gamer my whole life. So uh, in that sense, esports was definitely something that was right up my alley. But VR, really, until I started getting into the whole book project, that was the first time I really started to dive in deep in terms of getting my, you know, getting myself into these experiences and really exploring the possibilities for education. And that was the the book we're going to talk a bit about later, which was uh, you co-authored, and yep. uh, the, so that was the title uh, "Reality Bites: Innovative Learning yeah. Using Augmented and Virtual Reality." Awesome! I, fun that, fact, I have that actually, in- fun fact. I don't think I shared. Uh, I don't think I've shared this anywhere before. So this is a, an exclusive to this podcast. <laughs> the name of the book was actually Ready Learner One to start with, and when we decided to be a company, we kept the name Ready Learner One, and then. We we had the the charge of coming up with a new name for the book, and I and I came up with Reality Bites. Tell us about Ready Learner One then, and uh, you know what's its mandate? Is it your full time job? How did this come about? So it is my full time job. I'm the chief learn, uh, learning officer. It is we're an innovative learning solutions provider. A large part of our focus and expertise is in emergent technology in both the um, K-12 higher ed and the corporate spaces. So we've been doing a lot of work in both areas. I think it's always surprising when we tell people, or maybe even not that surprising, It's they're not as different as you think. When you talk about how we learn as adults, when you're trying to do professional development for educators, as well as for people in the corporate space, it's actually not that different. 
Um, a big part of our passion has been exploring the possibilities for VR and how they can um, push work forward uh, in every in all of those areas. Uh, I think given the fact that the company was founded by educators, we definitely have a connection to the K-12 space in terms of uh, that's definitely where our hearts lie, I guess, is what I'd say. Have you seen an uptick since COVID? Everyone keeps sort of surmising or <laughs> hypothesizing that COVID-19 has kick-started VR and education and more and more schools are looking for uh, a solution like this. Have you seen that with your work yet? You know, so Craig, you're you're a VR guy, right? I think you would understand what I'm about to say better than anyone, which is the last thing someone wants to do is put on a headset that someone else has been wearing, right? So um, I think initially when the pandemic happened, I think there was this initial um, question that we asked ourselves, is this the time for VR? And I think as we start to explore solutions in both the K-12 and the corporate spaces, the answer is it's helping accelerate adoption. But to be honest, we push a lot of people toward web-based VR solutions. So not necessarily solutions that require the headset, because as you know, right now, the challenge is, you know, no one wants to be swapping out these headsets and sure they have, you know, uh, these, these cleaners that you could just put underneath, you know, put your headset underneath and it'll do like a, you know, UV scan and get rid of all the germs, but it's still right now it's too sensitive of an area to really, um, where widespread adoption could really take place right now, but I think it's accelerated the possibilities of what VR can do. But I think people don't realize the power of web-based VR and you don't need the headset. There are already applications out there that make use of the headset or your browser and can still do many of the things that you could do in virtual reality with the headset. And much more ubiquitous. So you know, how many people nowadays uh, send their kid to school with some sort of device? Quite a lot, right? Absolutely. And uh, I've used Mozilla Hubs, but what are some other uh, web-based VR platforms that some of the listeners might uh, get familiar with? So we love Mozilla Hubs. That's one of our favorite things to demo for people just very quickly because it is so it is from the time you decide you want to open up a room to the time you have a room ready to share with uh, students and have them dropping in. I mean, you know, it takes less than 60 seconds. Uh, so if you haven't checked out Mozilla Hubs, that would definitely be a place I would I would start with. Another one that we really love is Spatial. So Spatial, um, we actually have our own Ready Learner One demo space within Spatial. Uh, that we love to 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 share with people, and you know, before we came on the air, I was sharing with you this great workflow that our CEO Micah Shippy had come up with. Micah is a teacher in Syracuse, New York, and he found this pine cone in his backyard. And using the iNaturalist app on his phone, he was able to identify what type of pine cone it was. He then used the Clone app, and Clone is uh, Q L O N E. He used the Clone app to scan that pine cone in and make it a digital asset. So it was a VR slash AR asset. And he was able to then bring that into our spatial workspace where I was then in spatial with my headset on able to hold this pine cone that he found in his backyard and scale and, and scale it, make it bigger, make it smaller, but you could still see all the granular detail of that pine cone as I was holding it. So you start to think about the possibilities for education now. And, you know, you talk about uh, these challenges like COVID that have come up and, you know, this is, uh, spatial when it first launched, I think there is a pay 
uh, component to it. But for me to create a room in spatial and then bring in these virtual assets that I'm scanning in from real life, all of a sudden that takes away a huge obstacle that educators have for being able to work in these VR spaces with their students. Especially when we want to encourage teachers to use um, sound pedagogy and most veteran teachers and beginning teachers realize that kids need to be able to engage in material, you know, manipulate it as opposed to just reading something on the wall in VR space, right? If you're going to come into virtual reality just to replicate what you would have done in your traditional classroom, you are totally missing out on the point of of VR. The whole point of VR is to provide your students with learning opportunities that they would not have had in their classroom otherwise. So you start talking about um, these other platforms. I know, Craig, you're familiar with uh, Altspace VR, which is where we do our Ready, Learn, and One Lounge show. Um, but there's all these other platforms, Rec Room. I, I don't know if you've had a chance to try Facebook Horizon yet, but that is, I mean, they've essentially created the Oasis, right? So we're we're already heading toward a place where we can create these worlds and spaces for our students to learn and explore and build and be creators of content that have never been available to us otherwise. And VR is already an amazing platform for learning in ways that were not possible previously. I mean, there are experiences like the Anne Frank house, which is out there, which if you're studying the diary of Anne Frank and you haven't at least attempted to get your students into that experience, you're missing out on probably one of the greatest um, you know, supplemental experiences that you could have to the text itself to really hammer home and create those, those empathetic experiences to let your students really get an understanding of what it must have been like for her um, during that time. I mean, it's really, the technology has come so far in such a short period of time, and it's only ramping up in terms of what it's going to be al- allowing students to do in, in, in months. 2D VR, which is on the computer or a tablet, is still not the same as putting a higher-end immersive headset on like the Oculus Quest. Tell us about the difference in your mind between the jump between the two. So in our book, we actually broke out, we created a framework called the ABC framework, the XR ABC framework. So ABC standing for Absorb, Blend, and Create. So we believe that all experiences in both AR and VR are tied to one aspect of those framework, absorb, blending, or creating. Now, similar to the, are you familiar with the SAMR model? I am. Absolutely. Yes. So SAMR, you know, uh, substitution, augmentation, modification, redefinition. One of the big things we always say about the SAMR model is it substitution is not necessarily better than redefinition, but you need, as an educator, you need to be mindful of where you are on that scale. So we believe the same thing about absorbing, blending, and creating. I believe having a student create content in a tool like Google Tilt Brush versus having them explore the world in you know, Google Street View, those are still very powerful experiences that if the learning design behind the instruction, behind the experience that the student's going to be using is designed properly, both of those experiences, whether they're just absorbing or creating, are, can still be equally powerful. You know, and the other thing that, you know, while we're talking about that, i.e. learning design, is we often find some groups of students that get a bit crippled or frozen when we give them 
you know, a headset, or even if we just allow them to create on a computer, some don't know what to do. And we have to unpack that and give them a, a specific task or, you know, uh, a scenario that enables them scaffolding to know what to create. Otherwise, you know, I've seen kids in tilt brush and after five minutes, they're sort of scratching their head because they don't know what to do after that. <laughs> right. So here's one of the things that I believe will be um, a positive, and, and I don't want to say that there's any positive to the the COVID, um, to, to the whole experience that we've all had to live through. But if we look at how this will impact education moving forward, I think one unintended benefit will be that historically, there have always been teachers who felt like they're not tech, they're, they don't know technology, right? And if you actually assess their skills, you'd see they do know technology, they're just not confident with technology, and they don't, they don't feel that they can lead in that space. Well, as a result of COVID, teachers have been forced to have to adapt in terms of how they are incorporating technology in their instruction in, in meaningful, meaningful ways. So I think we're going to wind up coming out of this where teachers will have a certain degree of comfort built into what how they're willing to push themselves in terms of designing their instruction. So I think that we will see teachers that are more willing and more capable of designing those meaningful learning experiences that leverage technologies like VR. Well said. I love that. And not only that, some teachers, I think they just forget that it's still about the teaching. So if you're going to use a VR application, you know, what's your lesson plan? Do you have sort of uh, preliminary questions to guide before they go in? You know, do you have things for students to consider while they're in the VR app? And then, of course, do you have reflection questions for kids to unpack sort of what happened and what, what's the conceptual underpinnings that they were supposed to learn after the application? I think the biggest challenge right now is that teachers don't know what they don't know, right? So in particular with VR, if you if you have a teacher who's never put on the headset before, they're not even sure of what they can do with that. So our big challenge and even, you know, a big piece of the release of our book of Reality Bites was we were traveling to events with our equipment specifically to get those headsets on teachers, to, to let them experience it because then they have a conceptual understanding for what the book was like. Now, I, I'm sure you probably know the book itself is web AR enabled. So there are web AR experiences built directly into the pages of the book, which was an intentional design on our part to give teachers that conceptual understanding of what is possible through the technology, but it's still not the same as putting a headset on. So there's still that piece of how, 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 how much can we expect to make inroads with VR if we're not getting those headsets on teachers to at least give them a sense of what the experience is like so they can start to wrap their head around how to design instruction that meaningfully uses the technology? And I would concur. I mean, my magical moment, which got me into this uh, path that I'm on with VR, was just the way you described it. You know, I was at a mall with my son, who was mm -hmm. 16 at the time. And he wanted to put on a headset. And I'm like, yeah, sure. And I sort of waited on the sidelines. And he said, Dad, you just, you got to try this. You got to try this. And sure enough, once, once I actually put the headset on, the magic happened for me. And all of a sudden, I was like, wow, this is so realistic. And the potential here is so um, broad that, uh, you know, end of story, I started diving into it. So again, getting headsets 
Exactly. One teacher is so key. We've already it's like sort of unlocking. Unpacked. It's like unlocking this part of your brain that you didn't know existed, right? As soon as you put on that headset, all of a sudden your mind is racing with the possibilities for what you can do with your students. And then it's like, well, what other applications are available? What? How do I, you know, how do I get a set of these? How do I manage this in class? And there's answers to all these questions, but until you've kind of opened the door, there's no real way for you to. It's one thing for me to tell you, yes, you can draw in the air. It's another thing for you to actually do it. Yeah, and move around and see exactly. what that looked like underneath it. And, you know, well said. We've already talked about some hurdles. Any other hurdles that you find many of the teachers that you've been working with over the years have said, you know, need to be uh, addressed for them to use VR in their classroom? You know, the biggest hurdle for teachers, and I think we're all seeing it right now in terms of, you know, this whole shift to hybrid remote learning is time. And not just time for me to to tinker, but time and support from administration in terms of professional development. So it shouldn't be on me necessarily as the teacher to have to go and find out about all this stuff and go figure it out. It should be, the school should be focused on innovation and on pushing practice forward by exposing teachers to all these different technologies. So, you know, those windows of time for that have become very limited because teachers have been so tied up in making the shift to hybrid remote learning. And like I said, I do believe some of the skills we'll come out with will help. But to answer the question we started this whole discussion on, I actually think that the pandemic in, in many ways has kind of, it's setting us up for a, a, a quantum leap to where we get to VR and AR is kind of these uh, tools we can't live without. But in the short term, it's actually kind of put a halt to um, to seeing this major increase in terms of using this stuff. Because right now, teachers are just trying to like figure out how to get by day to day in this hybrid. I mean, they're teaching kids in their classroom while they're also teaching kids at home. It's it no teacher expected to ever have to do this. Yeah. And then, of course, worrying about trying not to get the virus, right? It, on top of everything, right? Exactly. Uh, let's uh, shift gears. So, Jesse, your upcoming book, Esports Playbook. Yes. You tackle, you tackle such a difficult topic in education, which is gaming. And yeah. I say difficult because I've run ac across many parents and educators, for that matter, that felt like gaming was a bit of a waste of time. From mm -hmm. your experience, do you think this is still a prevailing attitude amongst parents, or do you think you know, now that we've entered 2020, more and more parents are seeing the efficacy of gaming and education. I think, I think it's a little bit of both. It's a little bit of, you know, the evolution of time and, you know, but I really think the fact that esports has taken such a, such a pervasive hold in terms of its place in like popular culture and even its standing globally as a sport that it's impossible now to look at esports as this as this thing that you could dismiss easily. It's almost becoming a thing that if you're not on on board, you're actually doing a disservice to your students. Which doesn't mean that people aren't still asking the questions they've always asked. So it's funny when when you you know when I was looking at the list of questions for our conversation and you talked about the difficult topping of gaming, I'm like, yeah. I mean, even as we were writing the book, we. It, we had to address that somehow, right? So we have an entire chapter, uh, entire section of the book is dedicated to what are the main, not criticisms, but one of the main 
issues that may come up in your conversations around esports, and here are the counterpoints. So we want to acknowledge, yes, we we couldn't in good conscience release a book called the Esports Education Playbook without <laughs> addressing the main conversations you're going to be having you're going to be having if you're trying to start a club or a team in your school. So we're very open and honest about these are the things that have been concerned. These are, these are the concerns that have been there historically. Here's what the research says. Here's what practitioners say. And so you may not get to a point where you are able to convince everyone to come over to quote unquote your side, but you can engage them in a meaningful conversation to show it's not as cut and dry as being able to say it's one versus the other. The research is mixed. Um, give, give me some of the top two reasons why I call them edu games, but games in schools uh, need to be higher utilized. Well, I, I'll share with you a story from the book that actually, so part of my role, so I, I co-wrote the book with uh, Steve Isaacs, Chris Aviles, and Christine Lyon Bailey, who is one of my co-founders of Ready Learner One, and she also uh, co-wrote Reality Bites with me. Steve and Chris have been doing this for years. They, they've been really at the forefront of the esports effort in education. So it was a real pleasure to get to work with them and kind of pick their brain and, and learn what they what what they know and what their beliefs are and kind of how they've developed programs from scratch. But one of my roles on the book was I had the privilege of going and interviewing um, someone in the neighborhood of like three dozen um, esports athletes, students, um, coaches, people who are in the industry um, to kind of find out, you know, what what get the real scoop on what esports is like, uh, particularly as it pertains to education. And one administrator shared a story with me about his school out in California, um, where they had implemented an esports program in a school, an alternative ed school. So these were students who barely attended school, really had no connection to the school community. They were lucky if they could even get these schools, these kids to come in. And East, uh, being a member of the, that esports team was actually like this incentivizing opportunity where this student actually was attending school, attending his classes, doing his work because he really wanted to be part of that esports team. And as they started to enter into their first competition, uh, you know, he got a phone call. The director got a phone call from the parent. The parent was like, "Is the competition open to parents? Can the parents come?" And he was like, "Absolutely, we'd love to have have you guys there." They call back an hour later and they're like, well, we have relatives that want to fly in from Sacramento. They come too. And it, that's when it hit home for him where he's like, wow, this, this is a family that previously had no connection to the school community whatsoever. And now they were willing to fly in to see their, you know, someone who, they're the first person in their family who was, you know, really ingrained in that school community and part of that school community. And finally they found a place, they, they, they felt like they had a place there within the school system. And so I think that holds true, not just for these students who are in alternative ed type programs, but when you talk about how we have viewed traditional sports in terms of, you know, what our definition of an athlete is, there have always been students who have never had a place in that, in that, in that area, in particular, if you're a gamer. And so I think what we're seeing now is that esports is this a gateway to providing opportunities for all students, regardless of race, regardless of gender. And I know that's something we should definitely talk about is the, you know, the, the gender equity issues, but um, it, it's opening those doors to having these really important conversations and providing these even more critical opportunities for every student to be part of the school community. People who aren't familiar with esports 
will automatically default to violent games. Absolutely. I, I was going to say, that's where I thought you were going. Like, yeah. League totally. of Legends, for yeah, example, totally. I think is one. World of Warcraft. Mm-hmm. And so, sadly, that's the connotation that I get and you probably get when it comes to, you know, gaming and, and then even esports. And, you know, I think it's wrong. And I want your opinion on how do you steer people away from that conversation and, and convince them that, you know, there there is a lot of nonviolent esports games out there for kids to learn things like strategy or right. systems thinking, problem solving, etc. So it's it, it's so funny. Uh, there's there's like two responses to that. One, I would say that in the book we do highlight a lot of the research with regards to violence in video games, but I think that's having that argument is like a fool's errand to some degree, right? Like you could provide the research, but if you're if you're defending yourself about violence in video games, then you're missing the more important conversation, which is the conversation around how you select a game for your school. Um, and the fact that a large number of the games that are out there are not violent games, right? So, um, you know, you have the opportunity to have those conversations, which, by the way, that's one of the main ways you kind of build capacity for your program is if you're picking the game and not engaging your students in the conversation, you're automatically leaving out a huge chunk of the students. And this is, you know, to your question before we got on the the show about uh, gender, you know, the gender gap and the gender, uh, how we address some of those equity issues. Um, Jay Collins, who started the Mischief League, which is, uh, you know, a league where they, they do games that aren't necessarily in the mainstream. Uh, he had this really great story, which we have in the book, and we talked about the diehard effect. So he he shared this story with me where he was saying how, you know, imagine you're starting a movie club in your school and you post, a, you know, you have a couple students who are really interested in starting a movie club and you're like, what movie do you want to show? And they're like, diehard. Like, okay, cool. So we're starting a movie club. We put up a poster. We say, okay, we're watching diehard first, you know, first meeting of the movie club. And, you know, you have a bunch of kids that come and watch Die Hard. And then you ask all the kids in the room, okay, great. We watch Die Hard. What do you want to watch next week? They're like, Die Hard 2. Like, awesome. Die Hard 2. You have a bunch of, you know, it's all boys coming to watch Die Hard 2. And like, what do you want to watch week three? Die Hard 3. Great. At the end of three weeks, you have an administrator come in and they're like, well, why are they all boys? You're like, well, I guess girls don't like movies. They didn't, they're not coming uh, to the movie club. Why? That's a because, story. Yeah. Because, you're, because you're only showing Die Hard. You're not engaging your entire student population or all of those students who are interested in actually determining what are the games that would bring the largest number of students to the table to get them to participate in an esports program. So these are a lot of things we cover in the book in terms of how you wind up creating a program that promotes equity, that promotes diversity, that really gives you the opportunity to to make an impact for all students, not just uh, a handful of students. But I think the other thing people are surprised to to learn about esports, and um, we actually had the great privilege, I had the great privilege of talking to Amon Green. I don't know if you know who Amon Green is. He was a running back for the Green Bay Packers. Um, he, uh, then coached high school football and now he's an esports coach, coach in Wisconsin. And we talked about the different skills that are required to, um, to be an esports player and how, if you're practicing at esports, you're not just playing the game, depending on the position you play in a game, you're focusing on the skills that are essential to the position you play and how you play as part of a team. It is all of the same skills that you would do if you were part of it, of an, of a traditional sport, such as football or hockey or baseball or any of these other sports. So 
there's a great deal of, you know, learning how to be part of a team and learning those skills on how to collaborate with others. It's not just about button mashing and, and, you know, and, and you know, playing a fighting game. It's the, it, nothing could be further from the truth. And what about VR in this mix? Um, again, VR is relatively new, but, you know, my understanding is that it is also growing in popularity as it pertains to the, the esports arena. So have you ever played Echo VR? I have, yeah. Ah, it's- okay. So we got to explain this to everyone here. So Echo VR, is, it's like it's like futuristic, ultimate frisbee, full contact. You, you have a jetpack. It's like Quidditch. It's right. It's like Quidditch ultimate frisbee with jetpacks, and it's free. And it's and it's free. So we we what's cool about it is you have the he- all you need is the headset. Echo VR is free. You can go with your friends and play on a team. Uh, you, you have to go through a whole training uh, regimen before you can actually play a game so you understand the underlying skills. It, I was sweating after playing for like an hour and a half. I, it was one of the best workouts I've had in years. So when you talk about one of the, one of the things that, um, you know, not criticisms, but the, the concerns, I guess, that comes up when we talk about esports is, well, look how unhealthy that is. They're sitting there playing games. And the truth is, a large part of what we talk about in the book in, the, in terms of the why of esports is about the social emotional learning component and the health component about how in a successful esports program, you are regulating diet, you are regulating screen time, you are doing all the things to ensure that your players are staying healthy. But when we start talking about now the transition to what VR esports could look like, in many ways, I could see them being as 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 athletically intensive as um, traditional sports. And in fact, esports, there are some studies I included in the book where studies have shown that based on heart rate and things like that, uh, esports athletes are basically as engaged as traditional athletes are in terms of you know their heartbeat and and, and other. Uh, measurements of the body. So while they're, you know, to the outside person, it wouldn't look like they're doing as much and they're not the number of movements they're making small, subtle movements, as well as their heart rate is actually as high as it would be for a marathon runner. Not only that, I think the term I use is literacy and lots of people, when they hear the word literacy, think it's about reading and writing, but you know, in any, uh, venture, including esports, there's a literacy that uh, participants or users need to learn whether that's, you know, what are the mechanics behind the game and how do I learn that or whether, you know, the rules. So there's a whole host of learning that has to happen and then need to engross, you know, and understand that whole systems. And so there's so much learning that happens, right? Right. And there's also, you know, one of the other things when we talk about this whole equity diversity aspect is an esports program is scalable. So unlike if I want to have a football team, there is a certain amount of things I need to have in place in order for me to run it, right? I need to have uniforms. I need to have equipment. I need to have a field. I need to have all these different things. An esports program can be started, whether it's a club or a team, with as little or as much as you want to put into it from a hardware standpoint. We share stories in the book where there are some schools, even schools I think that that Chris was working with uh, initially, where they were bringing their systems from home and just doing what they could to get it started. It wasn't about this whole um, investment that has to be made on the part of the school to start with. It's something you can build up over time. And do you suggest to schools who want to get started and have an esports club to 
find a league right away or can they, you know, just uh, play amongst each other? Like, you know, I guess if I'm a teacher thinking, you know what, I want to do this. I want to offer this as an after school club or some schools call them CCAs, co-curricular activities. So how do they get? Go ahead. So the book is actually divided up into a few sections. Um, You know, we obviously start off with an intro and uh, we go on a little bit of a history lesson with our good friend, Mike Washburn. I don't know if you know, he's a, he's a a fellow Canadian also from Ontario. Um, And it's funny because you were, I, in our, when you and I were uh, talking earlier, you talked about how uh, you you wanted to be a professional hockey player growing up. And he shares a few stories in the book about Joe Carter um, and the Mm. Toronto Blue Jays and how, how the impact that, that moment had on him is similar to how some of today's students uh, reflect on some of the esports moments uh, that have happened in in professional esports. But we talk about the why of esports, so those social emotional learning benefits, the health benefits. We talk about as we as we said earlier the um, how do you answer those questions and criticisms, uh, you know, those counterpoints uh, you want to provide. We talk. We have a section of the book that deals with how you get a program, whether it's a club or a team up and running in terms of who are the stakeholders in your school that you need to talk to from parents to facilities to, um, you know, clerical, custodial, your administration, your teachers. So how do you get buy-in from these different groups? And then finally, it's this last piece that you were just referencing, which is the, what is the actual logistical, how I get this up and running and how do I run it once it is up and running? So what are the different types of drills I run? What are the different types of activities my, 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 uh, my, my team or club members need to engage in? So we try to bring it all to the table into this one book in terms of you know, understanding the importance for those people who have no idea about esports at all, but just know the term and want to learn more. Um, talking about those conversation points letting them know how you would kind of get the program up and running. And then what's, once it's up and running, here's how you actually implement the day-to-day um, aspects of your program. If you have VR headsets, do you start right away with VR? Do you have a hybrid program? What are your, what are your thoughts on that? So it's interesting. I ha- we haven't talked to too many um, schools, or at least I haven't, where they're doing VR esports right now. It's almost like I've been uh, talking to schools about VR, or I've been talking to schools about esports, but I haven't really been talking about both. Even though I do always talk about Echo VR, just in terms of to to kind of frame what it could look like or what I think it's going to look like um, down the road. But um, you know, in terms of the equipment piece, the the funding piece is always about use the equipment you have or you have access to or how you can do this to scale meaning if you have a little bit of money or if you have a lot of money there's a there's there's different ways you can approach implementing a club or team so you talked about joining a league there's leagues out you know there's plenty of leagues out there for um you know for any you know club or 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 formal varsity team that you want to start but we want to make sure that you you're viewing this with a growth mindset right that you are are starting at a place where you feel comfortable that you can get an understanding of how a program should run and then scale up from there. But most importantly, how you need to have the voice of your students um, play an active role in terms of how you're going to build this program. Jesse, you do an amazing job of teasing the listeners. In other words, you, know, <laughs> you give us just enough information but to get us uh, sort of interested and get us salivating. So obviously there, there'll be a lot of people wanting to buy this book. Is there anything else 
that maybe we haven't said that you think uh, some of the listeners might be interested in hearing about? Well, I would just say if you're interested in learning more about the book, we, the, you know, I want to say a little over a week ago, I posted the cover and that was kind of our announcement that the book was about to come out. And I've been inundated with people that I know and that I don't know asking for more information. There's clearly a need for a book like this in the space, because I think we're the first um, major esports education book to come out. If you're looking for more information, if you want to sign up uh, to get more information about the release and giveaways and content like that, you can go to bit.ly slash esports playbook info, all lowercase. Uh, that's bit.ly slash esports playbook info. And you can just sign up there and we will get you that information where we have a lot of cool things planned as far as giveaways and um, we're, we're just really excited. The book should be out in November and, uh, yeah, I'm excited to, I'm excited to come back and talk more about it once it's not, once I'm not teasing it, when I, once I can talk openly, you know, about everything. That's fantastic. It's funny that, you know, you said the space has very few books, you know, uh, I too have written a book about VR. And when I started down that path or journey, I looked up how many other books were written about VR and your your guys's reality bites had not yet come out yet, but uh, that excited me when I thought, hmm, no one else has really thought about this topic as it pertained to education. So such an interesting journey, which is so strange because you know at all these events I I, I was going to right before the pandemic, there were so many sessions on esports. Like esports was definitely this thing that everyone was talking about. And so it just made me wonder, like, okay, everybody's talking about esports. How come there's no resource out there um, taking those pieces of what everyone's doing and kind of creating this guide for educators? And in many ways, Reality Bites, you know, the part that Micah, Christine, and I brought to the table was the creation of the framework. But really what we did was create this framework and align stories of educators who were using this in practice to the framework so that teachers can get a conceptual understanding for how you would actually um, implement AR, VR in a meaningful way, right? Similar to what we talked about before with the Sandra model. I think the esports book was very similar, right? Even though we don't have like this formal framework, it was collecting all of those different stories from people in all different aspects of the, of the esports world um, and just creating this entry point guide, kind of the guide I would have wanted if I didn't make it myself, you know, with my co-authors. Um, the one piece we didn't really talk about that I would just add is I don't think the one piece I learned in my uh, process of interviewing people that I, I love to share with people is that esports actually winds up being very little about the games themselves. The majority of people who are in esports clubs or esports teams, and even those receiving scholarships at the collegiate level, are people who are participating in the team but are serving in roles such as, you know, uh, broadcaster, streamer, uh, manager. They're people who serve behind the scene ro scenes roles other than playing the game, but are still earning scholarships and and are on career pathways based on the par their participation in the clubs. So even students who are just passionate about gaming but aren't necessarily great gamers still have found success in the form of college scholarships without playing the game. And that's the part I think that par that parents don't realize naturally that is part of the education process of what an esports program is all about. Being a gamer is just a small piece of the esports puzzle. There's a huge, huge, huge uh, percentage of these esports participants that don't play the games at all. 
And I, I interviewed uh, Caleb Eubanks. I don't know if you've heard of Caleb Eubanks, who went uh-huh. to the world world championship. And you know, one of the things he mentioned on an earlier podcast of mine was how easy it was for him to pivot outside of you know his esports career into you know a career that was related to business and public exactly. speaking. Exactly. And he talked a lot about the soft skills that he uh, developed being on an esports team. So I, I love that you said that. I love that you said that because Caleb Eubank is a good example of, you know, those skills that you develop are totally transferable. I'll share one last story. Um, Dr. Chris Haskell, who is the coach for Boise State, and actually he was the he's the national esports coach of the year this year. Uh, he shared a story with me about when I had interviewed him that week, he had just given a scholarship, an esports scholarship to, a, 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 a girl who was really, her role was she was a journalism student. So part of her her esports scholarship was to write stories about the esports program. So it just shows you how, how wide of an array of roles there are to serve in on an esports team and how there is something in it for everyone. So I've always been a huge advocate um, dating back to my days, you know, being in a school district where um, I loved these programs that we could bring into schools that would give students skills that they can apply in their real life. So the fact, so esports actually serves a lot of different roles. It can actually um, not just be this great uh, opportunity for students to participate in an athletic, uh, a varsity level athletic, athletic program, but it also becomes this, um, it's it's maybe one of the the few programs that can actually help you develop career skills beyond the actual sport itself. And they're motivated because they've they've chosen this, right? Like the downfall to schools is the silo or industrial model where they don't get much opportunity or agency to choose what they're learning. Whereas this, the, you know, they've signed up, right? Right. And you hit it on the head. It's, it's to me, it boils down to voice choice and agency. And if you're giving your students those three things, they're going to be more engaged and they're going to care more about the work they're doing. And if you're, if, if esports happens to be this incentivizer to do well in school, even better, right? So now you have students participating in, in, in class and being more engaged because they're so passionate about being part of that community esports program. Well said. What a great way to end this. Hey, if people want to get a hold of you, you know, for various reasons, including your book, of course. Sure. How would they do that? How would they do that? So I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Jay Lubinsky. So at J-L-U-B-I-N-S-K-Y. Um, our company site is readylearner.1. So dot O-N-E. I know people always get confused and think it's dot com. So there actually is a dot one extension. So readylearner dot one. Um, we are on Twitter at readylearner underscore one. And uh, again, if you want more information about the book, it's bit.ly slash esports playbook info. Thanks, Jesse. Thanks so much for being on the show. And if you hold on uh, after the recording, we can just have a quick chat. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Bye for now. Bye. Bye.